in our sermon text this morning is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Well, in these first five chapters of Isaiah, really what we're in, what you might call the preface to the book. When you buy a book and read a book, often there is a preface before you get to chapter 1. And really chapter 1 in Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 6, which is when he is called as a prophet. And these first five chapters are setting the scene. Isaiah is really saying that this is the situation I was facing as a prophet. This is the situation to which God called me. And what we read of here, particularly in this first chapter, is the terrible condition of the people to whom Isaiah was called to preach. The essential problem was that the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, there was a northern kingdom, Israel, and Judah, was the remaining two tribes to whom Isaiah was called to preach. The essential problem was that they were continuing in sinful rebellion against God. Assyria, the enemy of the people of God, was at the door, at the very door. And it was time to repent. It was time to turn to God for deliverance. But the nation was determined, stubbornly, to look to Egypt rather than to God for their salvation. And therefore the people were in the wrong, God was in the right, and in this verse 118, God has a case against them. He's saying, come, let us reason together. They were rebellious covenant breakers and sin was having a, a ruinous effect upon their lives. And you know what was true of these people of, of whom we have read this morning is true of our society and of every individual outside of Christ. That's why Isaiah chapter 1 and the whole of the scripture is so relevant to us today because how he described the people is exactly the same as how people are today and how we were before we, we came to the Lord Jesus Christ. The pollution of sin, the dreadful impact of sin can be traced all the way back through written history and even history that has never been written. We can say the same. It has had a terrible effect because Paul says, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed to all men, for that all have sinned. And I think our text today reminds us of two things. It reminds us of the great need of sinners. And it reminds us of the great mercy of God to meet the need 
of sinners. And those are the two things that I want to cover essentially today. In this first chapter of Isaiah, we have a vivid description of the plight of man in sin. And we read, I don't know if you noticed, but there was this kind of interruption by God. There's this analysis, this uh, anatomy of sin being described. And then suddenly God intervenes and says, Come now, let us reason together. Turn from your wicked ways, come and be saved. Do you know, if it wasn't for God's initiative, none of us would have ever been saved. No one could be saved today. Um, there was a, Paul, as a, often, it is often said that there is this couplet in the, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, but God, this interruption into, uh, of God into the way man was living, but God, but God, God literally butts in interrupts people's lives, interrupted our lives. We were walking one way. Some of us have no thought of God. There are records of people that are even atheists. They were walking one way, had no thought of God, and yet God butts in. He interrupts and he calls them and he turns them around. God God's initiative, Paul writes, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Many of us have that testimony. But God, the but God experience of the Christian, we were healed despite the fact that we were headed one way. God calls and in his mercy he lifts us up and Saves us. So as we come to this text, we see God's we see God graciously inviting sinners to, to consider their dreadful condition and to receive cleansing from their sins. So I've really got two points today, very simple ones. The first um, aspect of our text that I'd like to consider is the sinfulness of the people to whom this offer of salvation is made. God says that their sins be as scarlet and their sins are like crimson. These are poetic statements to describe the stain that has been left upon the lives of these sinners. Scarlet and crimson are not colours you're going to uh, pass by without noticing. They're striking colours, aren't they? And they refer to the, the dyes of Tyre. Um, the, the, the dye that the people of that time used to colour their clothes with. In David's lament over the deaths of Saul and uh, Jonathan, he exhorts the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet. The dye, the deep, deep dye, the double dipping of the cloth into the, into the dyes of Tyre. And once that cloth, once that wool was uh, dipped into the dye, that was it. You could never get it out. 
You could not wash it out. No gin, no rain, no soap, no detergent could ever get that dye out. That was a permanent thing. Sin is the same. Sin has left a crimson stain on, on, on the sinner's life, on you and I, outside of Christ. And it's soaked into every fibre of our being. And, and we can't wash it out. It's deep in us. And that's why the Christian is so grateful for the washing in Christ. We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, there is only one way to be washed, and that is in Christ. And in this gracious offer of the gospel, which we read of in this 18th verse, God doesn't sweep the problem under the carpet, does he? He doesn't sugarcoat the problem. These people are in a bad way. Their sin, their sin is scarlet and crimson in its colour. In, in, in the shame of their sin, it is scarlet and crimson. They are bright colours. Because every sin is a transgression of God's law and is deserving of his wrath. And God reasons with them on the basis of their hopeless, helpless state. Your sin is a real problem that only can find a solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1, God calls heaven and earth as witnesses against the people. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. God does this elsewhere in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 1, he says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. You see, when God speaks, all heaven and all the earth has to hear. Sin has cosmic consequences. And God is offering this salvation and all the ends of the earth. Even, even heaven has to hear what he, is, what he is about to say. And what does he say? Well, in the first verse, uh, in the first, um, in the second verse of chapter 1, First of all, he describes them as ungrateful, rebellious children. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God has brought these people up as, as a father. They're his children. He's been a father to them. He's nourished them with all the good things of life, and yet they have rebelled. They don't want to hear what God the Father says. They don't want to obey his rules. And they are in open rebellion against God. You know, the fact is, is that God is a good and a gracious God. He gives, the Bible says, rain 
for the land and its season. He gives the first rain. He gives the latter rain so that we can gather in our corn and our oil. He makes grass to grow upon the mountains. And it's the same whether you're righteous or whether you're unrighteous. He causes his sun to shine. Nonetheless, he gives us rain from heaven. He gives us fruitful seasons. He satisfies our hearts with food and gladness. And yet, sinners are ungrateful. The vast majority of people have no gratitude towards God whatsoever. By nature, we despise the riches of his grace, don't we? And more than that, we deliberately do the things that offend him the most. We break his laws, his moral law was given in the Garden of Eden. It was encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. That moral law is still in effect today. And we break that law. We do the total opposite of what God commands. We resist his will and we show no gratitude for his goodness. And yet... And yet, it is to people like that that this verse 18 is offered. Is that an amazing thing? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Secondly, in verse 3, we read that these people do not recognise God as their God, and they refuse to serve him. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. In that sense, you see that these people were acting worse than the animals that they kept. The ox and the donkey at least recognised their master, um, but not the people of Judah, it's hard for us to, to um, identify with having a beast of a burden. But the ox of those days is the, is the tractor of our day. The donkey of that day is the trailer of our day. Um, carrying all the supplies and plowing the ground. It was their equipment. But what use would it be to have, to have an ox that refused to do any work? To have a donkey that didn't even recognise you, didn't, didn't hear your voice and, and wouldn't obey any commands. Well that's what this people, how this people is acting toward God, their master. Yes, they'll take the food and the shelter uh, and yet they refuse to serve. And you know, that's how we behave by nature towards God. That's the effect of sin. We refuse to recognise or to serve God. And yet, this offer of mercy is given to people like that. People like you and me, by nature. This offer of mercy is made. And then, thirdly, they are a people, we read, that are sinking, literally sinking, under the weight of their sin. Verse 4a. A sinful nation, a people laden. With iniquity. Laden means weighed down. They are, that's what we do, isn't it? Outside of Christ, before we were Christians, we piled out sin after sin after sin. 
Because sin never stands alone, it grows, doesn't it? Once we start down the road of sin, it never just stops at one sin. We pile it on, sin after sin after sin, until as we get older, which is why it's best to become a Christian when you're young. If you leave it, you, you end up with this laden down with sin. You have so much baggage of sin. Sin never remains a single spot. We were driving, we went out for the day, a couple of days ago, and we, we went through someone's bath and I saw some sheep with the, the sheep marking. When you have sheep, you have particular colours so that if they get mixed up with another farmer's sheep, you, you know what colour your sheep is. And you have some sheep spray, and you, you just have a little circle on the back or even on the forehead of the sheep to say that's your colour. And these sheep, because it's been so wet, they, they, the sheep marking had spread all over their back and they were, they were effectively orange sheep. You see, it's the same with sin. Sin doesn't stay as a spot, it spreads. Sin doesn't remain as an individual sin. It, it, it's like, a, it's like those Gurkhas when they go for, for British Army training. They, the pebbles, the stones are put in their back and they, and they have to carry the, um, not on their back actually, in their rucksack, and they have to carry this burden on their forehead and they have to run up the hills and their rucksacks are weighed to make sure that it's heavy enough. And that's what we're, that's what a sin is like. We are laid, laden down with the weight of sin. And sin takes its toll on body and mind. And yet, what do we do as sinners? We pile sin on after sin. And yet God, God's mercy is extended here, even to people like that. In verse 4, the same verse, there are some here who are even described as children that are corruptors. There are some sinners, perhaps all of us, but some more than others, who are not only content to sin ourselves, we're determined to drag other people into our sin. To some extent, we have all damaged others in our past through our sin and failures. And it, I can think of men who I, I was involved with through work who have literally corrupted other, other people, other children. They've gone out of their way to corrupt them so that they can, they can get what they want out of them. They've planned it. They've, how can I corrupt this child, this person, so that I can get them to do what I want to do? Corruptors of others. People who, who prey on, on the weak, who take advantage. People who cause other people to stumble. Surely they must be beyond the offer of this verse 18. Surely God can't save people like that. Yes, he can. This offer is made to those who are corruptors of others. 
And then we read that these people are so sinful that they have ignored all God's warnings in his providential dealings with them. In verse 5, it says, Why should you be stricken anymore? Why should you be stricken anymore? Your country, verse 7, is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers have devoured it in your presence. And it's desolate, overthrown by strangers. You see, God had disciplined them. He chastised them. So that they would turn around and follow him. No longer look to Egypt, but look to him. And yet they still persisted in their rebellion and in their sin. Yet they are gone away backward, it says in verse 4. Not only did they ignore God, they were still going in the opposite direction. Do you know, that's what we can be like as sinners. In fact, there are three ways that God warns and reproves men in his providence. The first is through the Bible, the warnings of the Bible. Then by the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then through his providence. Providence being that teaching which shows that God directs all things according to his good purpose. And you know, the bad things that happen in our lives, we often don't see as good. We don't see them as purposeful. But God, you see, what does God see? He sees us as sinners walking stubbornly with our fingers in our ears towards the edge of the cliff. And we're about to drop off and be destroyed. And there is God throwing providential things into our lives to try and stop us, to, to cause us to turn around so that we are not destroyed. And he sends things into our lives. He disrupts our plans. Sometimes he ruins our businesses or gives us sickness or whatever it might be. And we become bitter against God, whereas he's trying to make us better in him. And yet we often ignore him. We don't think that God is saying to us that this way you're going is folly. What the proverb says in 29.1, He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And yet while you're still alive, while you still have breath, this offer of the gospel is still open to you. It's still given to you, even though you've ignored his providential warnings. Don't ignore them anymore. This offer is to you as well. And then, the congregation to which Isaiah was preaching was totally depraved in sin. Verses 5 and 6. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Do you know, for some, for some sinners, 
literally sin creates putrefying sores because of the, the, the illnesses and the diseases that come from living a promiscuous life. That's not true for everyone, but spiritually speaking, it's true of every sinner. Every sinner has a sick head. Every sinner has a faint heart. All men by nature are totally depraved by sin, which means every aspect of our soul, of our being, our body, mentally, spiritually, physically, behaviorally, morally, we are sick with sin. And to God, and sometimes to other people, sometimes to our wives, or our children, or our friends, we literally stink of the sin that's in our lives. And we're so unclean in the sight of God that we need a great washing. We need a great wash. We need this stain, this filthy stain of sin to be washed from our lives. We're broken and wounded, Isaiah says. And we need a great doctor, we need a great physician and if we don't get to the doctor, if we don't get to the hospital on time, we're going to die. That's the urgency of the gospel. We sometimes, because we're so familiar with it, we lose the urgency of it. People are dying and they need to get to the physician, the great physician who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the answer to our every need. Jeremiah the prophet spoke of a balm of herbs and spices that served as a healing ointment. And Jeremiah cried out when he, when he saw the spiritual wounds of the, of the people of his day. And in Jeremiah 8 verse 21 and 22 he says, For the heart of the daughter of my people and my heart, I am black, in other words, I am in mourning. Astonishment have taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of, my, of the daughter of my people recovered? You see, that's, what, that's the great news of the Gospel, is that there is a healing balm, there is a, a way to be made clean, a way to be cured and made whole. There is hope and mercy and healing for even people as sick and sore as that. Come now, God says, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. It gets even worse, these sinners in verses 9 and 10. These sinners that Isaiah is speaking to are so bad, and their rulers and leaders are so bad, that they are likened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, verse 9, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. Verse 10, hear the words, the word of the Lord. Ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. There is no greater insult to, to, a, 
to a Jew, to a Jew than saying that. Those uh, cities of the plain where the sexual sins were so unspeakable it reached such debauchery and perversion that the sins waxed great, the Bible says, before the face of the Lord. And God had to destroy those cities of the plain. People that, can people that live that kind of lifestyle, can people who are literally perverted in filth, who are living the very worst kind of life, can they be saved? Is this verse addressed to them? Yes, it is. It's addressed to, to people who are like those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. No one, dear friends, we, should, we shouldn't rule anyone out. No one is beyond the mercy of God. And what about religious hypocrites? Those who sin against the light, who have great knowledge of the Bible, who have been brought up in church, and yet they still won't acknowledge God in the last Surely they're, they're excluded. Now in verses 11 to 15, we read of the religious hypocrite. God is troubled by their religion, of course. He's wearied by the religious ceremonies they perform. Because like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day, they... Um, they only worship God with their lips and not with their hearts. Their hearts are far from God. And it's true that if you pray to God and your heart is full of filth and sin, your prayers get any higher than the ceiling. The, the only way it gets beyond the ceiling is if you are crying out to God for forgiveness and mercy and then it reaches Him. You, Waste of time praying if you're living in sin. Prayers without purity are not heard. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my face from you, God says. Why? Because of the way they're living. You see, religious observance, even, even in a Reformation church like this, does not make you clean. It does not save you. It does not wash away this crimson, this scarlet in your life, this dye of sin, religious observance, religious knowledge does not suffice. In fact, if you go through the ritual of church and you're far away from God in your heart, God, it, it revolts God. It offends God. It's a stink to Him. And that's how many of the, those people were, were living in that day. They were, they were performing all the religious ceremonies. They were outwardly religious people, but in their hearts, they were one thing on the Saturday, on the Sabbath, and they lived like pigs the rest of the week. And what does God... Surely they are now excluded. Surely they've blown it. Oh no. The invitation of this 18th verse goes to them as well. Even to the hypocrite. 
What is the main lesson of all of this, dear friends? What's the main lesson of this divine assessment of the sinner's need? Surely it's this, that no one is so sinful. No one is so bad that they cannot be saved. We could say also that no one is so good that they do not need to be saved, but that's not the main point today. All have fallen short of the glory of God. I'm going to assume that those who are hearing this today feel, feel something of the shame, feel something of the bright colours of, of their guilt. And this call, this offer of gospel mercy is to everyone, no matter who you are, what you've done, Man, man may not forgive you. I can't promise you that. You may have done things to other people they will never forgive you for. And that might be the case until you die. I can't promise you that. But the, we, I can promise on the basis of the, this word of God that there is forgiveness for you from God and in God. We who know Christ are sinners saved by Christ. We, we were once sinners. We were the children of wrath as some of you, said Paul. True born again Christians were once fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and abusers of themselves and mankind. They were thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers, extortioners. Some were some some were some of us. But we, thank God, have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. But the point of this morning is that you can be too. If, if, if we, many, many people in church, truly born again, have been as low as that and yet have been saved, so can you. We've spoken at length about the sinfulness of this people to whom this offer was made. But I want very quickly to turn to the offer, the free offer of mercy and of great salvation that we have here in Isaiah chapter 1. Come, says God, let us reason together. Do you know there's not a verse in the whole of this Bible that forbids a sinner to seek for mercy. Don't listen to some of the hyper-Calvinists who say, you know, we must only um, preach the gospel to those who look like they're, they're chosen or showing some signs of, of being elect. That's not true. All this Bible does from the beginning is to make a free and open offer to the whole world. Whosoever will may come Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. He doesn't say, Come unto me, respectable people, come unto me, religious people. Don't come, he doesn't say, Come unto me, you who've got it all together in your life. He says, Come unto me, all of you who are, who are laden down like those. 
people of Judah with sin. Come unto me and I will give you rest. The rest of salvation. We need to come to Christ because we're sick and wounded by sin. We're polluted and we're in danger of hellfire because we have provoked, Isaiah says in this first chapter, we have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. And you do not want to do that. Believe me. That's the last place you want to be under the wrath of God. And that's where you are if you haven't come to Christ. The good news of the Gospel is that God is merciful to those who seek mercy. Whoever comes to Him, He will never turn away. Sick and stinking and putrefied as sores as we are, we can come to Him. And He will not cast us away. Come ye sinners, says the hen, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Love and power. You see, you see we, need, we need both. We need the love and the power, don't we? We need, more than, we, we need more than the sympathy of God. We need a miracle. Because this sin, this crimson, this scarlet sin... It's going to take a miracle to get it out. It's going to take a miracle to, to make it look white, to cover it, to deal with it. Love isn't enough. We need cleansing. But the Bible says he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. We have a God who is willing and able. That's what the, the leper found, isn't it? He said to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. But the point was, he was willing and able. He had the power of healing in his hand. And only God has the power to wash away our sins. And no case is too difficult. Christ washed the leper of his sin. Christ washed the promiscuous Samaritan woman at Jacob's well from her sin. He even washed the, the sins of the dying thief who minutes before was mocking him on the cross in conjunction with the other thief. And yet he, just at the last minute, he turned to Jesus and sought mercy and Jesus washed him from his sin. Today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus wants to baptise sinners all over the world, from every kindred, tribe and nation. He said in the parable of the banquet to the servant, go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, come into my house and be filled. There was no time for them to go and get dressed and smartened up. Come to the banquet, drag them out of the hedges, compel them, drag them out of the gutter, no time to change into good clothes, come as you are. Come now out of the pub, out of the betting shop, even out of the church if it's telling you a load of lies. Come out of it and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we, we never get any better 
by staying away from Christ. I mean, some people think, well, I'll clean myself up first. I'll try and reform myself through morality. I'll use um, my self-discipline, my willpower, just to try and get rid of some of these sins first, and then I'll feel more appropriate, and I'll feel more appropriate then to seek God's salvation. It doesn't work like that to The old hymn says, just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark spot, to thee whose blood I can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. You don't wait, you come. And dear friends, we should come because he is willing and able to wash us from our sins. Scarlet sins, crimson sins, can all be made white. White as the snow, white as a beautiful new coat of the wool of, of a sheep. And outside of salvation, we're filthy. We're as an unclean thing, and all our unrighteousness is crying out before God. And all the things that we think make us look okay to others, to God, are like filthy rags. In Christ, God clothes us with a new garment, with the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ. You may think, well, I'm so unclean that I can't possibly be saved. Do you not think the leper felt that way? No one had ever so much as made eye contact with him for, for years, probably. Certainly no one had loved him like Jesus loved him. Hanged him and loved him. He was, he didn't feel, Jesus didn't feel revulsion when he saw him like everyone else. He loved him. Embraced him. He's willing to make anyone and everyone clean who comes to him. Well, you might think it's just this one sin, which is so bad. I hurt this person so much. I just don't think that's going to be forgivable. You like uh, Lady Macbeth in the play. You, you, you're trying to rub the blood off your hands in, the, in her dream. She had that spot of blood and she rubbed and rubbed and rubbed. She tried to, she said, will these hands never be clean? But the point is she could have with sin, you can rub all you like, but you'll never get it off. You'll never get it off by yourself. Many have tried. Jeremiah said in chapter 2, verse 22, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. Only God can wash us. I even I am, I even I am he that blotteth out my transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins, says Isaiah. Coming to the end now, but the Old Testament closes with the promise that one is coming, a Messiah, a Saviour, who would come like a refiner's fire. And like a fuller's soap, the fuller was the, the launderer of that day. 
who washed the clothes and washed, washed the linen and the cloth so that there was no spot on it before it was made into clothing for the people. The fuller's job was to make sure there was not a spot on the cloth to clean with soap, with fuller soap, to make it bright and clean. And Malachi says, one is coming who has fire to purify and soap with which to wash people's lives. When Jesus was transfigured, it says his clothing became exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can wipe them. Did you know the Christian can be made, the sinner can be made white as snow by the glorious Son of God, who himself shines exceeding white as snow? Like Joshua the high priest in Zechariah, the Lord Jesus Christ can take away our filthy garment and say, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. It's called justification by faith by the Apostle Paul. You see, there's a cleansing in Christ, so fundamental, so deep, that the scripture says that there is no spot or wrinkle or any such thing left upon us in the sight of God. In the cross, there is a fountain open for sinners to wash in. There is a fountain, the hymn says, filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, what? They lose all their guilty stains. It's amazing, isn't it? At the cross, Jesus took the guilt and the shame of our sin. Of our sin. He took on and paid the price for your sin. He took on your shame and guilt. The shame of the things you did and brought on yourself, but also the shame that others have brought into your life, maybe. Maybe the abuse that you've had from from someone else. At the cross there's healing for that too. Jesus takes all the guilt and all the shame, all the punishment upon himself, upon the cross and he washes sinners white as snow when they come to him for mercy. And so Isaiah, God through Isaiah says, come now. Let us reason together. Don't leave it for another day. Come now because your sin, your sin will kill you. It will destroy you. Destroy you. It will just drag you into hell. You'll go over that cliff edge. But there is hope and mercy in life now. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come now, God says. Come and be saved through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for sinners. May you do so for his sake. Amen. Amen.